I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. I'm Eli Sands. And I'm Fatmai Lagudu. You're listening to Deep Cut. Long live Bahubali! Bahubali! Bahubali. <laughs> we had to do it. Yeah, <laughs> it had to happen. <laughs> Is it me? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> On Deep Cut, we compare a director's most popular film with a personal favorite chosen by one of us. We also discuss the director's life and career to bring in context that helps us view their movies as they may want us to. Today, we are incredibly lucky and honored to have our dear friend of the podcast, Fanmai Laguru, back Woo-hoo. to discuss a new director and a new set of films. Welcome back, Thamai. Welcome back. Welcome back. Thanks, guys. Happy to be back. I'm happy that I was not insufferable last time. And <laughs> oh my God. Far from it. You guys <laughs> decided to bring me back. Enlightening. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. If you haven't heard our episodes with Thamai that we recorded last year for the director Mani Ratnam, please do check them out because they are great episodes. They are bangers. I did listen to a bit of them earlier this week and reminisce about the good old times. <laughs> I did too because I was trying to pregame a little bit. I'm like, okay, what are all the mistakes that I've made? How can I improve them? Oh my God, no. So there was a little bit of that. But yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you guys about our filmmaker today and um, hopefully it's a very fruitful discussion. Oh, our conversation on Dilse was one of those perspective-shifting moments in movie-going for me, mm-hmm. without a doubt. And we always keep on referencing Dilse. <laughs> we really do. It's true, yeah. In our continuing episodes, we're like, oh, this is sort of a Dilse moment. <laughs> or a Dilse situation. Yeah, I was listening to your guys' Happy Together episode, and I was like, <laughs> and you guys made the Dilse reference, and I was like, oh, I, I know why that's my favorite Wong Kar Wai now. <laughs> <laughs> So that was illuminating for me. (laughs) (laughs) And hopefully with the filmmaker that we're going to discuss these next few weeks, we'll be able to make as many connections as as we did with Ratnam's films. Mm -hmm. So today is a major day because we are going to be covering S.S. Rajamuli, (laughs) the big boy. Big. And... I'm so glad that we have Tommy on this podcast, who has been Roger Mooley pilled <laughs> and has Roger Mooley pilled us as well. <laughs> in a good way, in a, the best way. I'm glad to hear this because, Wilson, I get, tell me if I'm wrong, but I was posting about RRR for like a month nonstop on social media. Yes. <laughs> and I think I basically annoyed you into watching his movies. <laughs> I was like, Come on, I need to see it now. I need to see it now. This guy just keeps on posting about it every fucking day. <laughs> I just need to get a taste of Roger Mooley. Yes, I'm glad that you guys have been Roger Mooley pilled. And um, yeah, and, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it, I guess, though. <laughs> yeah, and because it is our first episode on Roger Mooley, we will do a brief director summary. Samai, if you want to, you could take it away. Yeah, I am happy to. So S.S. Rajamuli, or Kodurisi Sri Saila Sri Rajamuli, was born on October 10th, 1973. Right now, he is an Indian filmmaker and screenwriter who predominantly works in the Telugu language industry. 
Um, he was born to a Telugu family in the Raichur district of Karnataka. His dad, V. Vijendra Prasad, is a screenwriter who currently primarily works with Rajamuli on building out his story concepts. Oh. There isn't a lot of uh, information available about his early life, but we do know that he did move back to Andhra Pradesh and did his primary school education in a small town called Kovur. And then he got his uh, engineering degree at a college in Ailur, which is just kind of like a, a neighboring town. That makes total sense that he got an engineering degree <laughs> with all the design and creativity in these movies. Mm -hmm. We'll get there. Right. <laughs> Using some of those connections that he had in the film industry, he joined as an assistant to the veteran editor, Kotagiri Venkateshwar Rao, who, you know, at the time was a very popular film editor. Mm -hmm. And in fact... Kotagiri actually became Rajamuli's editor for almost all of his films except RRR. Mm. Shortly afterwards, Rajamuli joined as an assistant director under a prominent director this time, K. Raghavendra Rao, and he eventually got to direct some episodes of a Telugu soap opera. Rajamuli has credited Raghavendra Rao as one of his filmmaking mentors, uh, and then in turn, Raghavendra Rao has called Rajamuli a, in Telugu, Panirakshasthru, which roughly translates to like workhorse or a work monster kind of, <laughs> which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. In 2001, he made his feature debut with a film called Student Number no. One, which was kind of a Telugu masala film that launched N.T. Ramaro Jr., who is now a massive star in the Telugu film industry, who was recently featured in RRR as being Ben, if you uh, want to know. Of course. <laughs> and, you know, Rajmuli has a really wide range of influences. He's often said that his favorite Hollywood film of all time is uh, Mel Gibson's Braveheart. Wow. Huh. Of course. I know. And he, and he says that he's heavily influenced by Mel Gibson's directorial work. Uh-oh. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> uh, That's wow. his automatic fave. <laughs> right, right. Uh, we all have him, don't we? <laughs> and uh, some of his other favorite films include... Uh, Michael Mann's Last of the Mohicans, uh, Weiler's Ben-Hur, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, Terminator 2, the Indiana Jones series, and he's also a huge fan of early Buster Keaton comedies. In fact, his 2010 film Maria the Ramana was actually a remake of a 1923 Keaton comedy called Our Hospitality. Fucking crazy movie, by the way. <laughs> yeah, great. It's really good. If you guys haven't seen it, it's a great watch. Most importantly, he cites a lot of Hindu mythological texts such as the Ramayana Mahabharata, as uh, major influences on his work. Uh, he also talks about the Amar Chitrakada, which are basically comics that kind of depict these Hindu epics primarily for kids. He cites them as major visual influences to the Bahubali franchise. Hmm. Despite these latter influences, Rajamuli personally claims to be an atheist, which, yeah, take that how you will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cut to today, he's probably India's most successful working filmmaker. He's directed a total of 12 films. All films were successful both critically and commercially. Hmm. Rajmuli is pretty known for being a perfectionist uh, in the industry, especially notorious for incredibly long production schedules, expecting 100% commitment from his leads and his crew. Prabhas himself committed about five years of his life to Bahubali. What? Whoa. Mm -hmm. I know, right? Yeah, no, he like really expects his actors especially his lead actors to like block out that chunk of time. And he, he's like, you're with me. This is our time. Wow. Get jacked. <laughs> <laughs> to get jacked, to eat like, you know, interesting. The thing is too, like apparently Raj Muli like made uh, Prabhas get on this like really strict diet where I think Prabhas was eating something like 
60 boiled eggs a day or something. Oh, my God. <laughs> to get jacked for the movie. It sounds miserable. It does sound miserable. Hey, but if it makes it look like that. It pays off. He looks <laughs> yes. great. I'm going to go buy some eggs. <laughs> oh, my. I know. <laughs> yeah, get ready. Benjamin Yap, the next star of the next Roger Bully film. Ben Hubali. I'm expecting this change by the Pony and Sullivan episode. Let me tell you, Ben. I'm <laughs> I need five years. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and also, uh, Roger Willey is also incredibly notorious for delaying the release dates of his films because that's how much, how committed he is to like getting his movies perfect. Fun fact, uh, he works with a lot of his own family on his projects. Uh, his cousin, M.M. Caravani, has done the music for all his films. Like I mentioned earlier, Roger Willey writes his films with his dad. And M.M. Kirvani's wife, uh, Shrivali, has worked with Rajamuli as a line producer since Iga. Mm. Uh, Muli's wife, Rama, has worked as a costume designer on all his films. Rajamuli's son, Karthikeya, uh, actually worked on Bahubali as a second unit director. And then on, oh. he worked on RRR as a, as a co-line producer with Shrivali. Wow. Another fun fact. Uh, Raj Muli famously attracted the ire of the internet early in the <laughs> pandemic when he mentioned in an interview that he fell asleep while trying to watch Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, in an interview, uh, Raj Muli said, quote, Parasite didn't work much for me. I felt like the film was slow in the beginning. We started watching the film a bit later on 10 p.m. And so halfway through, I dozed off and fell asleep. And frankly, I think this is absolute Chad King behavior. Yeah. Because who would say that? Yeah. I mean, to be fair, in comparison to Bahubali, most things are slow. Yeah. That is true. Take that, bong head. I know. I read that and I was like, wow, I have even more respect for Rajamuli. Um, so, yeah, I think that kind of closes out the background portion of it. Yeah. Thank you, Thamai. Have we said what we watched? We haven't, but I want to ask you, Thamai, how did you first discover Rajamuli's films? What was your first Rajamuli film? And how many have you watched? I remember, you know, like when we were talking about Money Ratnam, I told you that it, he was not a filmmaker that I was kind of connected to when I was a kid and I kind of discovered him in college. Rajamuli is that director that I have been growing up with since I was a kid, right? Like, mm. you know, his films they have been kind of mainstays in sort of the Telugu-speaking households, and I come from a Telugu-speaking household. The very first Rajamuli film I saw was Magadira, and at the time I had just moved to Florida with my family, and I, you know, I was like 11 years old or 10 years old, and, you know, at the time it was like still trying to make new friends and, and stuff, and I remember watching Magadira in this like really like awful theater, like it was just a really terrible theater but <laughs> there was something about that movie and i credit magadira a lot for kind of starting my passion for filmmaking mm. i think it was kind of magadira avatar and inception that kind of like started everything <laughs> heck yeah classic brown boy behavior yeah uh, <laughs> you know rajmuli is somebody that i just have a very personal connection to i think sometimes to a fault where I watch his films and I'm so taken by them and I and I can't really, you know, <laughs> point out any flaws because his films are such mainstays in Telugu households. Like, mm. Magadira is like the movie that you play when, you know, you have a house party at a Telugu household and, you know, that's the movie that you put on the television while everyone else is kind of doing their thing, you know? Mm. Like, honestly, if you were to ask me, like, the two best blockbuster filmmakers working right now are S.S. Rajamuli 
and my other favorite Indian filmmaker, Christopher Nolan. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> <laughs> He's Indian? You guys have been wrong this entire time? <laughs> He's not British. <laughs> He's ours. <laughs> I am waiting for the day that we cover Nolan in this podcast, and I asked you to do a, a director background, and you're just like, he was born in Chennai in like 1940. Yeah, he went to Punjab yeah. National University. Yeah. <laughs> and then everyone's like, what is happening? You gotta rewrite history, dude. I know. And then you know, and like literally, I I went to I remember seeing Iga in also a theater in Orlando. I saw Bahubali 1 in this like really rundown theater in Toronto when I was visiting my uncle. Why do they always run down yeah, theaters? What's up with that? <laughs> Circumstance and also, I don't know, it's just where I was at the time, I guess, <laughs> mentally and physically. <laughs> you know, and I remember watching that movie in 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 this theater in Toronto and and the end occurring and you know and my jaw like dropping like with with what happened at the end and I actually you know what I remember somebody in the theater like standing up in shock like this dude like just stand stood up when the end happened and I was like and I'm sure everyone's like sit down but like it, you know in their head but everyone also was really shocked so it was like a big thing and then I saw Bahubali 2 in in that came out in 2017 right so I actually, mm -hmm. this is the most I've ever spent in a day, I think. I <laughs> I took an Uber to uh, like Hartford, Connecticut to watch it oh on God. the IMAX screen there. Oh. And that was just incredible. Oh, I'm sure. And then I saw it a second time with uh, my mom when I went back home. Oh. And RRR, I've seen three times in the theater. <laughs> yeah, boy. <laughs> one viewing for each R. Exactly. Exactly. I had to honor each one, you know? Yeah, so when we were talking about Money Rutham, you know, Money Rutham is a director that I look at his films and, I, and I'm inspired in my own writing and storytelling and hmm. the way I want to make movies. S.S. Rajamuli is the director that I watch and I'm like... <laughs> Oh my God, I'm never going to be able to make something like that. <laughs> but I love it so much. It's it's kind of the way that we watch like people like Cameron, people like Nolan, right? Mm. Where we're like, oh my God, I'm never, I'm just so astounded by the spectacle and the construction of this that I will never be able to make this. But that itself is like enough to inspire us to be better filmmakers, mm. to be better writers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what Rajamuli has been for the longest time. So yeah, Roger Lee is kind of that OG director for me, mm. where I kind of grew up watching his movies and cut to today, you know, I'm so incredibly proud of him because he ups his game like with every movie, you know, and he's just, just an incredible craftsman at that too, so. Yeah. I'll go after you, Thavai. Sure, go for it. It was all thanks to you that I started watching those Roger Mooley movies last month. And I sort of went on a little binge after I saw Magadira and I was like, like Thamai, it, it changed my life. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is the guy that I've been searching for my whole fucking life. <laughs> like who I believe in. Yeah. Cinema has the ability to be a form of maximalist entertainment. It should be, yeah. right? Hmm. And that is why people go to the movies. This is what brings people to the cinemas. And while Hollywood is in the depths of the most bland superhero filmmaking we've gotten in, in years, like halfway across the world, and also because RRR is screening all over the world, but halfway across the world, Roger Mooley is absolutely knocking it out of the park every feature 
he's done or every feature I've seen from him. So after Magadira, I went on and watched Mariada, Ramana, and Iga, and then the two Bahubalis, and I am patiently waiting for RRR, which I assume stands for Reduce, Reuse, Recycle, (laughs) 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 to come out in Hong Kong, and I can learn about how to be a great environmentalist and uh, take care of my planet. (laughs) Yes. You actually set the theme of the film. It's all about recycling and reusing. So yeah. You're right on the mar- yeah. You're right on the money there. Yes. Yes. He catches yes. the motorcycle and promptly puts it into the waste bin. Exactly. That part yes. they cut yeah. out of the trailers, though. You know, oh, right. You, know, you go to the movie for that. You don't yes. have to put see that part. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but I am constantly in awe of the way that Roger Mooley is able to construct scenes, but also an entire film, like based on spectacle. And based on maintaining your heart rate as high as it can be, having you as an audience member engage the entire runtime of this movie. And I think the two Bahubali movies, the movies that we're going to talk about today, are at least to me the top tier examples of that. And I think, like Thamai said, with every film, he keeps on one-upping himself. And also, in a beautiful way... And it, like in a beautiful as it should be way, keeps on getting more and more popular every new release he puts out. So that's why the Baobalis are our popular pick for Harajimuli. So Ben and Eli, do you want to um, talk about your experience with Rajamuli? My first brush with Rajamuli is when I think that my mention are are in the Discord. <laughs> Check out the Discord link in the description. And I was like, okay, what is this? Let me look at the trailer. And I was like, okay, this looks a lot. I wanted to watch something a lot. <laughs> I found out that there was no Telugu language version playing in the cinemas except for the IMAX screening. So I went for the IMAX screening. Of course. <laughs> and that is the best introduction to Rajamuli you could possibly have. I'm starting at the peak here. Yeah, I'm jealous of you, Ben. Yeah. And you, Thamai. I haven't seen a Rajamuli in a theater yet. I'm waiting for the day. It was bonkers. And when we have all seen RRR, we can talk about it. But mm. that was a great first impression uh, of basically his latest work. So I was very excited to watch both Bahubalis. I basically just finished watching these in the past two days. They remind me of Chinese wuxia films mm. in like a weird way. I'm reminded most of like Zhang Yimou's Shadow, which was also very extreme and like creative in its set pieces. But of course, with Rajamuli and with six hours of film, there's just a lot more that he's like chucking in here. Mm-hmm. It makes me think of like Shakespeare in the kind of plots that he's doing as well. Mm. It's very Shakespearean kind of like court intrigue type stuff. Of course, the scale, like, like RR is in a sense, <laughs> if I can use this word flippantly, realistic <laughs> it is about a past that kind of looks familiar whereas Bahu Bali is fantastical it is I don't want to call this period but it, it's it's more of a fantasy setting even though it's right. like supposed to be like ancient era India whatever it is I don't, I'm not a geographer so I don't know what the periods are called so but with um, Bahu Bali there's much more of that um, world building mm. which mm-hmm. feels very big i mean i feel like with everything i'm gonna say about Bible, it's about how big it is mm-hmm. and just how much more stuff there is here but i think the shakespearean stuff where like it is able to keep things small despite the scale of the war yes that's the stuff that keeps you engaged especially in the second part i'll go into a little bit about the first part because i feel like the first part by nature of it being kind of an introduction 
feels very weak to me. Right. As a introduction to the story, it feels a little like it needs to get you to a place so that the second part can be fully a climax. Yeah. And I find that a little awkward the yeah. way that it's kind of cut down the middle. But the second part, I think, is much, much stronger and so engaging because of Rajamuli's taste for kind of his reverse Uno card in plot. Yeah. <laughs> he loves to like put that twist on you. RR has a great twist and I love that about that. And then when I saw that in Bahubali as well, like he would constantly changing up who you think is who, where you think allegiances lie and like putting characters in different kind of spots in terms of like where their power lies makes it very interesting to watch. Even if you disregard the spectacle and the action and the fighting and the CGI and the animals and the fire and everything. Mm-hmm. So that, that's kind of just my ramble about Rajamuli for now. <laughs> And I'm really excited to actually watch Iga because it feels like Iga. something smaller. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that <laughs> Roger Mooley film looks like. So I'm pretty excited to see that and like what he comes up with. Mm-hmm. It is literally smaller. <laughs> I'm also curious about how Roger Mooley could possibly go smaller because I agree with Ben that this is just about the largest movie I've seen. Lord of the Rings came to mind in terms of a comparison of scale. Mm-hmm. But I almost want to say that this is a step beyond (laughs) because there is nothing binding this movie. It is not coy. It does not use bathos to undercut itself. It is unabashed and it is entirely successful to me. I find that there is a trap in comparing American cinema to Indian popular cinema because that often winds up being condescending of this half-baked understanding of melodrama or hard on sleeve or Mm. convenience. But I come away from the Bahubali movies feeling like I've found the type of spectacle that I click with more than, yes, our current superhero fare on the American side. Mm -hmm. The big things that I'm most impressed with aside from the incredible scale and choreography of the action are, as Ben said, this immaculate palace drama and political thriller that emerges in the second picture, which is so remarkable because all the motivations of each character are so clear and traceable. Mm -hmm. For example, how the Queen Mother Sivagami Devi's want to balance her love for her sons leads her into being fooled by Balabiva, the evil son. As an example, these ways that motivations become flaws and intertwine so intricately, I'm deeply impressed by that structuring of the plot. Um, I have to remember all three things now. Um, <laughs> When it comes to the action and the spectacle, the endless creativity, Mm. every beat is a new thing. And that ties into my third thing, which is that the characters are not just clever. They're not just quippy, again, in a way that undercuts the movie, but they are smart. If you think of the climactic battle at the end of the first movie, which takes place in the past with the senior Bahubali, Mm. he's given fewer weapons. He's given these wall-destroying trebuchets, unlike the finer weaponry that his brother is granted for this battle. And he uses that so intelligently to cast giant drapes over the enemy army and then set them on fire. Not only is that incredible to look at and stunning, it is smart. The characters are clever and smart. This is an important distinction for me. All three of these things and more 
make these wildly impressive movies to me. I, unlike Ben, do like that structure a lot with the delayed exposition of what happened in the past because that pulls me into the second half of the first movie and the majority of the second movie very deeply. Yeah. I find that the places where I like the movie least are the treatment of Avantika's agency, which is ultimately contracted some by Devasana's agency, I think. And also, I sense a strong streak of colorism mm. in this movie, particularly with the enemy army in the first movie. Yeah, Those are like the things that make the first movie much weaker. I agree. I don't know, maybe we should do other stuff first before we get into this. Right. Because yeah. you basically hit on the exact two things. Yeah. But those are my main big points that I come away and why I feel so impressed and engrossed. I was telling Wilson and Ben that I watched the first movie, especially sort of piecemeal as I had time this week. And I just instantly was pulled back in. Hmm. I was watching, I'm ashamed to admit, on my phone on the subway at one point, and oh. the noise surrounding just <laughs> faded away. I was fully pulled into the movie. I admit this shamefully, but I also <laughs> use it to say how strong this movie is. Eli, did you watch the conclusion on your iPhone? <laughs> gonna fight you through the computer screen no this no. is like this is like watching dunkirk on my apple watch energy let me just tell you i'm sorry i'm a busy person no i get it i get it no worries yeah. we did have six hours of watching to do for this episode i know i know i know i'm giving you a hard time yeah. don't worry but the ending i did not watch on my phone okay great. i watched it properly and i was so shocked yeah, wow. Atapa is my favorite character. Oh, MVP. he's great. Okay, before we really fully dive into this movie, I'm going to do a quick plot summary. So Bahubali, the beginning, and Bahubali, the conclusion, tells the epic tale of Mahendra Bahubali, who is the lost son of the ousted king of the Mahishmati kingdom, Amirendra Bahubali, and his wife, Princess Devasena. So Mahendra's search for the truth about his past lead him to the heart of the kingdom uh, and a thirst to fulfill his destiny. That's all I got. That's the, that's the briefest of plot summaries I got. <laughs> it, well, let's establish also some characters that we're going to cover or we're going to talk about in this episode. So we have Bahubali Jr. and Bahubali Sr., both played by Prabhas, gorgeous, and also... Great acting, but mostly gorgeous. <laughs> no, both, 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 both. Incredibly charismatic. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we have Avantika that Eli mentioned earlier, who was a rebel fighter fighting to free Princess Devasena or Queen Devasena. And Mahendra falls for her in the beginning. We have Balaladeva, who is the brother of Amarendra. So it's the younger Bahubali's uncle. And uh, he's the son of... Sivagami and Bijaladeva. Sivagami is the queen mother of Mahishmati. She cares after both her son Balaladeva and also the older Bahubali after her mother dies during childbirth. And then we have featured more prominently in the in the conclusion we have Queen Devasena who was Bahubali's senior's wife that he courted and was taken away from him by Balaladeva. And last but not least, we have Katapa. Yeah. Katapa. Who is the king's guard and whose family swore an oath to protect 
the heirs or the kings King. of the Maishmati yeah. kingdom. And I don't think I'm missing anybody. Am I missing anyone important? I think I've covered everybody. Those are the big ones, yeah. 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 I think we should just dive in. What I think we should do is I really like thinking about Roger Mooley's work in a like a macro and a micro scale because on like a major plot structure basis, I think he's doing a lot of interesting things here with storytelling and with themes. But also when we get down to it, we can pick some specific scenes that we want to talk about how he's able to so masterfully craft these individual set pieces. But yeah, I think we should first talk about the split between the beginning and the conclusion, because although I think all of us can agree that the beginning is the weaker of the two, Mm. it is intended to be a setup for what happens in the conclusion. And even Roger Mooley himself said in an interview prior to the release of the conclusion, he says that in the first part, it was only the introduction of the characters. We haven't really gotten into the plot yet. So <laughs> once all the characters are established, which is at the end of part one, then they can actually move forward with the plot. And he says part one is like the starter of the meal and part two is the actual meal. And I feel like that's definitely how I feel about it. And I think on a rewatch, I appreciate a bit more what the beginning is trying to do with getting us to very clearly understand our main players and what their intentions are and what their attitudes and emotions are, attaching them to really iconic imagery and the imagery being repeated in the opening credits of the conclusion. So like Devastena with the, the twigs as she's putting it into the, the pyre that she mm. is dreaming of burning Balaladeva in, or the cliffhanger of Katapas stabbing the older Bahubali. All these iconic images are established in this first part, and the pathos is beginning to build up, and then when we get to the conclusion, it just all comes to a head. With both the flashback timeline and also the regular story timeline. Looking at it in an overall perspective, I think it's just such a genius work of storytelling in that you have both part one and part two, but both movies are sort of split with a flashback section and a regular section. And the regular time section is sort of sandwiching the flashback. And through the flashback, we get to gain all this emotional weight to what Bahubali needs to fulfill, like his destiny. Mm. That is able to fully realize in in its like most heightened form, a Rajamuli theme that I think is the strongest for me. And that is destiny. You are set on this earth to finish a thing, Mm. a finish and unfinished thing. Like think about like Magadira, which opens with two lovers falling to their death off of a cliff, like separated in the air and unable to come together. And the whole movie being their reincarnated selves finding each other again. It is an idea that Rajamuli continues to revisit. I'm not that familiar with the Mahabharata, but I would think that that is a major theme that Rajamuli took from that. Or I think it's just something that feels like it is very central to his filmography. The stuff that you're talking about with fate and destiny, 
Like I'm thinking about RR now as well, and like that also has some of that thing that you need to do. Mm-hmm. RR does something, no spoilers, that is, I think, really interesting with how it deals with fate mm. and like what you are meant to do, what you really want to do from a plot level. Here, like when you have stories of fate and destiny, it really works very well in a melodramatic mode because there's a very strong sense of audience fulfillment. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Especially with a six hour epic, right? Like if you're able to sell that fate and then get them there in the most difficult journey then that arrival at the destination feels really powerful like i mean the ending of bali 2 is so short mm-hmm. he sits on the throne that's it you know there's no epilogue there's none of that it's just we're done we're on the throne you don't need to think about it. and that feels good you know that feels like conclusive and satisfying yeah because even though his films are so long he just gets to the point right like there's no wasted Mm. time really yeah like even though you're like two and a half hour long films (laughs) there's no wasted time it's weird to say that but it's true one of the ways that he so efficiently creates catharsis in line with this almost system of belief in his character's destinies is through setup and payoff of plot elements so we've talked about how Queen Devasena is creating the pyre that Balala Deva is eventually immolated upon. There's also the giant statue mm-hmm. that Mahendra Bahubali helps to raise and then knocks over in the climactic battle, which allows his mother to step across the area where the burning bridge was. These are things that are planted early on and seeing them pay off in such perfect Mm. sometimes convenient but satisfyingly convenient ways later on like five hours later (laughs) is so satisfying that's part of the stuff that makes it feel very cohesive in a way that i think modern hollywood films have kind of lost a little bit i feel like yeah scenes in modern hollywood films have kind of an ulterior motive like they're like okay this is a comic relief scene rather than a scene within a larger picture so i think his macro view of his story even though it's such a long story feels very dialed in Mm -hmm. although this is also a way for me to segue into why i feel like the introduction the beginning feels a bit weak to me is because the first hour of the beginning feels extremely extraneous to me and i struggle a lot with that especially with Avantika's character and the way that she feels like a footnote in the conclusion she feels like a little bit of sex appeal just to fill in the first hour I struggle a lot with that because the first film feels so much like the second half sets up the second film and then the first half sets up the second half in a very kind of loose way that doesn't feel useful to the kind of grand scheme of things yeah you know like you guys I I definitely with time have grown to not really like part one as much. I still admire so much of it, but a lot of it has to do with the way they treat Avantika's character and a particular scene mm. where uh, Mahendra is undressing her, but it's supposed to be played as kind of this romantic thing. Yeah. yeah. It's really uncomfortable to watch. Yeah. I guess I kind of understand what Rajamuli was going for, but it's just kind of an uncomfortable thing to watch because of how like kind of male gazy it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also how kind of cheapens her character a little bit too, because yeah. she's introduced in such a fantastic way right like Mm -hmm. she's first presented to Mahendra as like this image of pure beauty that like inspires him to come up the waterfall and then Rajamuli subverts that by showing her as this like powerful warrior Mm -hmm. and then it kind of feels like he degrades her character for like Ben was saying sex appeal and for the romance and then her character kind of stops there and that's definitely something that has ruined or not ruined but it's kind of 
sours mm. part one a little bit. In a way, I feel like I would have given it a pass if Avantika's character, her story, was more interwoven with the kind of larger conceit of the palace intrigue. But she's so disconnected from what's happening. Yeah. And I'm honestly still confused about what her, her clan is doing. I understand they're trying to save Devasana, but like, where were they? Where have they been this whole time? Is such a big question. They were the kingdom. Remember Davisana's kingdom. Yeah, are they not from Davisana? I, I understand, but like, yeah. like they still feel a bit shoehorned in a little bit. Fair. Even though I get it. And also when you have the introduction, it kind of has this call to adventure thing for Bahubali. And I think there's a thing that I think is the most disappointing about having it is that when you look at the grand scheme of it, and I know this is a bit of a cinema sins problem with the film kind of nitpick, but it feels like Bahubali got onto this adventure because he was a little horny and he saw a beautiful woman. Well, it feels that way and I don't like that I can have that feeling when I look at it from a big picture. Mm. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. because I feel like there must be some other way that we can get Bahubali Jr. to get to this point where he finds out about his past, like a different way, you know? Something that doesn't require him to be compelled this way to go up the mountain. I know he had already wanted to go up the mountain, so... Yeah, he had that natural compulsion. I feel like there must be something else he could have done mm. to get us there when this feels so unnecessary. I agree with you, Ben. Avantika's characterization and ultimate really sidelining across both movies is the major disappointing part of... I suppose both movies, really. What the first hour of the first movie does for me is really introduce me to Prabhas as Bahubali mm -hmm. and shows his righteousness and strength. And the concerning part that is supposed to be played as charming is the way he treats Avantika. Mm -hmm. I see its goal and also it doesn't quite land for me. I don't think I had that big of an issue with the Avantika stuff until the musical number where he undresses her happens mm, yeah before all of that happens i just had a lot of faith in the like the rajamuli logic of things like oh he bahubali in order to stop her his adopted mother from going up and down the river to the the shiva shrine thousands of times mm. he carries the shrine to the waterfall <laughs> by placing it there his own wish to get up to the waterfall is answered in the form of this mask right without the mask he might not ha even have found himself in the right crowd he might have found himself with people in the kingdom that could have killed him like I, I feel like in my head it is all working in this level of like fate like it, it you're you're bound to get there this is this is your destiny this is the path that you have to follow just going off of that i was sold a lot more but i think yeah, the treatment of, of Avantika from that musical number onwards to when she's just basically dropped as a major character yeah. was a little disappointing. But I, I feel like it, it is hard, right? Because you have Devasena, which emerges in, in the conclusion as such a powerful character, both in flashback and also in present day, that her need and her want to get revenge on Baladeva consumes everything. It makes sense because the pain is so large that I think Rajamuli just uses that as like the, the main driving force um, once you realize what he had done to her and older Bahubali and also the baby. Mm. I also do think that the beginning gives us a little more time to breathe and I think that is maybe why I, I prefer part two a lot more. 
like right now in my rankings, Bahubali Part 1 is at the bottom of my Rajamuli ranking and Bahubali Part 2 is at the top of my <laughs> Rajamuli rankings. Yeah, I, I, I do also find the action set pieces in Part 1 to be a little lacking, right? I think there are yeah, a couple of them, right. like the avalanche one scene. I agree as well. Where I think that the CGI unfortunately doesn't work me as much as it does in a lot of the other scenes it feels like the cg in the first part is not as good as the ones in the second part yeah and i don't know whether that's just me like it feels less polished yeah it's almost like they put so much more money in the other one yeah i kind of love the bullfight though mm, yeah. the bullfight's great introducing balala deva no actually everything with animals looks amazing like in yeah. rr there's a lot of animal stuff oh the animal Ooh. stuff always looks good yeah. i love how they have a little like thing on the side that says cgi well i was watching on a netflix <laughs> and it says cgi just yeah. so you're sure we didn't harm these animals when we made this movie right there were a few Make moments sure. where they didn't have it and i was like hmm <laughs> i of course how did they do it without cgi <laughs> to be clear i don't think the bull looked realistic but what the CGI lacks in seamlessness across both movies to me, it more than makes up for in creativity. Yes. And inventiveness. Yes. I want to cite a review from Sean Gilman, who is one of my favorite film writers and is on Letterboxd. He wrote a review of Bahubali Part 2, um, where he talked about the CGI use and talked about how Rajamuli uses CGI not only to just reflect reality or try to make things as real as possible but to he uses the words expand what we believe as reality like using cgi to expand those bounds i think that is something that i latched on to really early on watching like magadira even or iga is that cgi doesn't have to be realistic if you use it in a way that people use animation to make things that you can't achieve in live action, yeah. you can get creative with it. And I think that's such an incredible breakthrough here or a, a, like a very unique new way of using CGI that really utilizes to the maximum effect what you can do with CGI. Right. Another thing too is, you know, a lot of the stuff with the CGI is also the budget constraints, but one of the places that he's so good with is his use of CGI is so creative it's also really incredibly well considered it's almost like he knows what is the limit that he can make it seamless even though he knows that he can't make it fully seamless he's still able to use it in a way that like you said wilson kind of expands the possibilities of reality like i'm thinking about the hamsanava song in bahubali 2 which it is about a a ship that takes flight and it's mm. kind of this fully CG rendered landscape. It's one of my favorite sequences in both the films. Mm -hmm. And Roger Lee understands that obviously a, a ship can't fly, but you know, he uses CGI, he uses spectacle to externalize like emotion and pathos. That's how he he uses it, right? Like the Hamsanava sequence is so much about externalizing the love that these two characters have mm -hmm. for each other. They literally fly, right? With horses made out of clouds. And, <laughs> you know, and you know what I mean? It's again, like, it's all about not representing reality at its exact preciseness and exactness. It's about, I would say, painting reality and extending reality ultimately to externalize emotion and to heighten spectacle yeah that is the way he uses it that you know i think in american filmmaking and blockbuster filmmaking we've gotten to a point where cgi is so seamless that it feels part of the rest of the world 
that to me, when I watch something like Bahubali, I'm like, like, this is what the purpose of CGI and a lot of, at least in Rajamuli's films, it just feels so much more evocative and so much more of like a a filmmaker behind that uh, than a lot of the American blockbuster films that we get, especially the Marvel stuff. Yeah. It is entirely coherent across the board and it is artistically risky to not give us CGI that is perfectly photo real. Mm -hmm. And that also makes it a form of trusting the audience. Budget constraint aside, it says to the audience, I know that you will look at any type of CGI, no matter how well integrated, and be able to recognize that what you're looking at is not real. Even with that, you can look at these images and essentially learn the language that this movie is speaking with Mm. in CGI and get on board and follow the emotions and have a great experience. Safe CGI, photorealistic CGI, is a form of succumbing or coddling the audience and meeting them where they are instead of asking the audience to step up and appreciate the experience the filmmaker is trying to impart with the tools that they have available. Yeah. Yeah, and a part of that, making that leap for the audience too, Eli, is... Rajamuli's emotional structural basis for the way he especially made the Bahubali stories is so strong, especially the second half, that he's kind of like, okay, like maybe the CGI is not perfect, but you guys are on board, right? You know, you, exactly. Like he, mm-hmm. he knows that the audience is on board, so he knows that the audience can meet it. Yes. It, it don't like bad CGI only becomes an issue for me, at least, when your core emotions, when your core structure is not strong yes right yeah. that's when you start to point out flaws like oh like that bull doesn't look right this doesn't look right but when everything is motivated so clearly by emotions and drama and pathos all of that like nitpicking kind of fades away that cinema sin stuff sort of fades away you know mm-hmm. yes like it's kind of like when you see old cgi then it's less about how good it looks and more about what is the story you're trying to tell. Yeah. Right? Yes. He's working within his budget constraints, but he knows he needs this shot that has this thing. He needs these bowls to be on fire. So, okay, yes, of course we're going to put CGI in this. I think he works within those constraints. And I think stuff like the fact that you need the CGI to be with the actors at the same time, which usually is very difficult. And I think those are where the seams come out the most. But I think that it's important to see the characters in those scenes where you can see their faces and the acting while they're doing action stuff. Mm-hmm. The fact that he's not afraid to kind of put those two together, even though the scenes might be seen. But the fact that, like you said, Tamai, that you can follow the emotional stuff that even though you might spot that seam as you're watching it, you're going to forgive it and you're falling more of what is the element here? What is the story here? More so than whether it looks good enough, yeah. whether it looks seamless enough. And what is the emotion as well? Performance is more yeah. important than mm-hmm. special mm-hmm. effects. It's making me think a little bit of a lateral move here, but it's making me think about what people would call, I guess, over-the-top action stuff <laughs> that's in <laughs> Rajamuli's films. I was thinking a bit about this and how the action is unrealistic. We have superhuman characters that aren't necessarily superhuman. You have this in Bahubali, but you also have it in RRR. But it's because of that same thing where the emotion is so strong that you're not really thinking about the realism of what's going on. You're thinking more about what is the effect of this. This is just a very big action to support very big emotion. Yeah. That's kind of his MO, right? Like he is using this very strong emotional um, core so that he can push the rest of the cinematic stuff into very far extremes. Right. So that he can really wow you with that spectacle and not have the spectacle feel out of place. Right. Yeah. And and something else to point out too is I think we kind of talked about it a little bit with 
Money Ratham, kind of the, the definition of Indian masala filmmaking. Um, he definitely fits into this mold. And I, I think what Rajamuli understands about masala and this type of storytelling is what you said, Ben, is that the viewer, you know, is going to like excuse these things with CGI. But the biggest like issue would be if you didn't get your emotions right. And I think that's one of the big things that he understands about masala storytelling is that like regardless of where the story goes and like what it does, that if your characters are right and your motivations are right, that the audience is going to be willing to go with you on the journey. You know, I, I think when we talked about Money Retnam, we talked a little bit about how Money Retnam subverts a lot of elements of masala storytelling, how he kind of breaks the masala film to try to get to something deeper. Mm -hmm. And I think Roger Mooley's doing something a little different, right? He's perfecting the masala storytelling. Mm. Yeah. He's not subverting it like Money Retnam does. Those have different functions, I think, uh, yeah. you know, when we watch a movie, right? With money, you know, especially with something like Dilse or even Bombay, right? You think about what you come out of it, even though, like, you know, both filmmakers, they, they have such great understandings of emotion. When you watch a Rajamuli film, the, the experience is different because the scale is much bigger, but there is such a fine-tuning of the masala storytelling here. Mm. Uh, there's such an economy of storytelling also, mm -hmm. where you know that you're not, you know, you're not watching something fresh and new, but you're watching something that's been fine-tuned to a way, in a way that allows you to have the most maximum reaction to something, right? Like, Rajamuli's kind of perfecting that, that mold where... I think Money Retham always tries to subvert it with whatever he's trying to do, you know? So I, I guess that's a kind of an interesting thing that I, I realized where Roger Mooley, I don't think he's like doing anything with his stories that are totally different, at least from a basic way. Like, no, yeah. if you look at Bahubali, it's kind of like an inverted Lion King, like kind, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? Which is an inverted Hamlet. So it's Hamlet. <laughs> it's just Hamlet, yeah. okay. Yes, that's true. <laughs> you know, he's not doing anything to subvert it. He, he just perfects it, right? Mm -hmm. He perfects it. Yeah, that that's basically it. That's kind of what I what I've realized when you know, kind of talking about with money and then talking about uh, Rajamuli. They they work in the Indian popular cinema mode, but they kind of have very different approaches to it. Which is interesting because I'm interested to see what Money Ratnam does with Pony and Selvan because that seems very masala film. I don't know, down the line. Right, right. Or, yeah, uh, it's an adaptation of this like really popular novel, and it's kind of this big scale, almost Bahubali type epic. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's interesting to see how. Money Rathnam's kind of desires to subvert the masala mold generally and kind of go with kind of his, his instinct, how that will fit into like this massive budget. Also, Pony and Selvan's going to be the most expensive Indian film of all time too. So Whoa. we'll see what he does with that money too. That like trumps Bahubali because Bahubali once held the crown for the most in oh. expensive Indian series of, or film series of all time. Right, it's going to top RRR. Like, RRR was the, was Even gonna, more. Was the most expensive. It's going to be oh more than God. RRR, so, yeah. <laughs> but I was reading about the budget for the Bahubalis, and both of them cost 56 million US dollars to make. That's the joint budget of the series. It's very low. That is low. <laughs> Didn't I read something last week that each episode of the new season of Stranger Things cost $40 million? But most of that goes to actors. Yeah, but yep. still, I'm like, they're working at much lower, like, budget levels. And here's the thing, Wilson, you know, and I was talking to Eli about this a little bit. Eli and I watched The Northman really recently, the Robert Eggers film, which mm. also kind of works in a mythic mode mm. structure, right? But the weird thing is that is a $90 million movie, and you don't see a single cent of that on screen. 
I'm sorry to say for all the Robert Eggers fans, but um, but it's it's so fascinating because I just came out of that movie, right? And then that was my last theatrical movie. And then I watched something like Bahubali, which, like you said, both parts were made with a joint budget of about 50 to $60 million, right? Mm -hmm. This could entirely just be a different approach, you know, to filmmaking. But it's it's just something that I noticed is like Rajamuli is able to create this massive scale, like like you see every cent and then some. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas like in in this like Robert Eggers Viking epic, it's like oh okay, you made like a one million dollar movie, great job. I don't know where the other eighty nine million. Went. <laughs> Into the volcano. You know. <laughs> oh my God. So I mean, sorry to all the fans, but I had to say it. Eli, I read your review of it like a couple days ago and I was thinking about your review when I was watching this movie because you were talking about the the overdubbing which happens a lot in like South Asian cinema right and I'm sure it happened a lot for this movie I don't know how much percent of the like the Telugu version that I watched was recorded on set or not but they did they do have the Hindi versions and all all the other mm. versions that they dub and because it's so common for them to dub overdub these movies, the vocal performances are so impactful. Each line delivered packs the punch. They really make that moment count. And the importance of how things sound, Rajamuli really takes that into account. It's, it is important for him to, to make sure that it sounds correct. Well... Just like with what we were saying about CGI, overdubbing is another tool. There's a reason why we don't complain about the overdubbing in like Bicycle Thieves or other Italian neorealist cinema, even though it was all over the place in Italian cinema for decades. When there's a problem with the technique, it's a problem with the story, usually. The overdubbing in The Northman is cheapening the story. It is deliberately designed to make that story more, what have you, intelligible or accessible to a wider audience, whatever any of those terms mean, mm -hmm. instead of using it as a tool of immersion or consistency and coherence for the story. Right. It's not a problem here because it goes hand in hand with what the story is trying to do, create those big impactful moments mm -hmm. and focus on performance, as you're saying, Wilson. I think something that we do need to talk about is the ending to Bahubali 1, oh. <laughs> particularly in its storytelling and also the way that that marketed the second movie oh so yeah smart. right like that is something that i definitely want to touch on because you know from a storytelling structure it is shocking it's stunning it's brilliant i remember when i watched it in the theater my jaw dropped i was like oh my god what did he do how could he do this that's his best <laughs> friend <laughs> you know like with all these thoughts you know the brilliant thing about that ending, too, is, you know, it's a cliffhanger, right? And when I was there at the time, I had to wait another two years for <laughs> Bahubali 2 to come out to find out why Katapa killed Bahubali. You know, you guys watched it straight, so you yes. had no problem. I suffered for two years. <laughs> yeah, I just clicked play. But here's the interesting thing, you know, like, that ending was such a, like, a shock to Indian audiences, was such a new thing to Indian audiences that Rajamuli understood its marketing capability. Whoa. So he started a hashtag after the movie came out hashtag wkkb why katapa killed bahubali <laughs> yes on twitter oh wkkb that's so good <laughs> what that did was drive people that wouldn't have seen the first movie to see the first movie mm. and on top of that got this insane audience to uh, to like watch the second film so like this definitely had an impact because let's talk about the collection for the first movie the first movie made about 600 crores which is about 77 million dollars 
The second movie made 1,180 crores, which is about $278 million. Oh my goodness. And I credit a lot of this to the brilliant way that they used the ending of Bahubali 1 to market Bahubali 2. Mm. Like, let me tell you about this number. Like, this is still the highest grossing film in India. Like, and interestingly, Bahubali 2 is also the highest grossing Indian film in the United States. Made 20 million in the United States. And even with RRR, Rajamuli was not able to top this. You know, it's getting kind of close. Like, it's still collecting money, but still, he still hasn't topped himself with RRR. I wanted to definitely touch on the ending of that film because it is such a great way to kind of gauge your interest into the second movie. And I remember, you know, when that happened, I was like, oh my God, like, what are the possibilities? Like, what could happen? You know, like, it made me think about what happened in the flashback. And But then, like, you know, you kind of know Roger Mulia as a storyteller. You're like, oh, it's going to be pretty kind of classical, you know, straightforward, you know? But he still gets you there. Like, two hours into the second movie, that's when you find out why, right? Yeah. Why Katapa killed Bahubali. <laughs> it's pretty rewarding because it's he's so good with intertwining all these character motivations, especially with Siva. Like, the reason... Katapa killed Bahubali is because of this deceit, right? Yeah. Uh, and this kind of palace intrigue and Sivagami getting to a place where she felt like she had to have Katapa kill Bahubali, right? And it's so rewarding to get there because he engages you all the way there that, you know, when you do find out, it doesn't feel like, oh, that's why? That it, it actually feels like it's earned, you know, like mm. that it's like, oh, this makes a lot of sense. And it's really dramatically fulfilling yeah. to get to this point to know why this happened. The gauntlet that gets thrown down anytime you do a prequel or in this case, an earlier timeline within the story of Bahubali is, OK, you know where things end up. Is it still going to be surprising and emotionally engaging? Rajamuli passes that test with flying colors because he sticks so closely to character motivation and clarity of character emotion. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I think if the second part had like begun with the answer, it would have been such a cop-out. It would not have that kind of dramatic engagement that you were talking about, Thamai, where because it takes two hours for you to get the final answer, it feels like not a simple cliffhanger. Yeah. That two-hour journey is all that palatial intrigue that we're talking about that is extremely engaging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where the kind of machinations of all the characters, and especially for Sivagami, who I think is a very interesting central character because she's yeah. not like Bala, who yeah. feels very evil, feels like he just is in it for himself to be on the throne, right? He's a very classically bad guy. But then with Siva, she is not really gray, but she is... Fallible. Swept along by the things. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Makes her a very compelling character. She's n- not really a hero, not really a villain. She wants what's best, but is swept up by her own emotions, by her own principles, yeah. by her own adherences to Mahishmati's kind of culture. And I think that makes her a very interesting character. So I think the, the women in, in part two are really, really fascinating, especially Devasena, who is... A great character, especially when she's oh, at yeah. odds with Sivagami. Yeah. Like, all that stuff is so interesting because it has a bit of that. If only we could have talked this through, it would have been fine. But it has that great kind of cascading problems where problems beget more problems. And then that pushes us to this kind of final confrontation. That journey is very well plotted and really interesting. Like if this had less, no action and it was just all this stuff, it would still work. Yeah. And be interesting. It's still so engaging. Yeah taking that time in part two to build even more pathos and emotion and anticipation for him to really fulfill 
what he has to do. Like everything becoming so clear before you hit that like final action battle sequence is so important. That's why part two is just like the perfect, it's like the perfect movie, yeah. right? Because I feel like if you d even didn't have the backstories there in part one, you have enough emotion there cultivating in part two alone. All the things that happen in that final sequence makes it worth it. And I love Devastator so much. I think her introduction in part two, when the bandits are coming to get her and that fight sequence. It is better than the way they introduce Amarendra. Like, honestly, yes. it is so amazing, <laughs> yes. right? Like, the way he constructs it, like, cool. Like, he, a big, like, gate fell down and awesome. He did that. But she, oh my, like, I, I, like, I remember watching this in the theater and I was like, what am I watching right now? <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was so like oh my god like they introduced her so powerfully i was like stunned and and, and honestly like what makes devastana such a great character too is that she's so principled too mm -hmm. right yes you know there's that incredible scene where bala gives her a like sends all this gold to the kuntala kingdom and she's like mm. well i'm not impressed tell Sivagami to take this gold back. And she just, like, sends this, like, really crazy insult. Yeah. Like I gasped when I saw that the first time. I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> she said that. Diss track. It makes her such a, an incredible and strong character, the way they introduce her, the way that her and Sivagami Devi, like, butt heads because of their ideologies, right? Like, Sivagami is somebody who wants to stick to tradition, right? Like, he wants, she wants to stick to the laws and... And Devastana's mm -hmm. like, well, your laws are shit. Your <laughs> laws are awful, yeah. you know? And and there's something so inherently amazing. And also, I think something great for the audience when a character rebels against something, rebels against yeah. the status quo, right? Yes. There's something so satisfying about that. You know, in that incredible scene where she's pregnant and, and chained up and because uh, she cuts off the fingers of this guy who was like groping all the women. Yeah. Even there, she's just like, like, you have no morals. Like, you put a pregnant woman in chains, you know? And like, she just does not hold back. And I think that's something that's so charming about her character. Yeah. And then that scene is just, just an amazing scene. And then Bahubali comes. The ending is, Ooh. what? Yeah. When he decaps that guy, I was like, what? Incredible. <laughs> Critical hit. But at the same time, you you can also fully understand where Sivagami is coming from, right? I right. Mm -hmm. Trying to keep together this royal family that's basically just hanging on by a thread when she steps onto the throne at, at the start of that flashback you can understand why it's so important for her to uphold these traditions and these rules and her dharma and that mother-son relationship and the it, the break of that between bahu and sivagami is so heartbreaking for me i think i like you i really feel that pain mm. and like when she says that line towards the end of that part 2 where she says oh bahu bali's death is certain like mm. like when She's being pushed by Bijala Devava. I had to pause it. <laughs> the, the first time I watched it, I was like, oh no, please don't. This going to happen. Here's the thing. Like, Rajamoli, he he knows how well he built this mother-son relationship. Yeah. That when you get to the Katapa killing Bahubali, one of the things that you see is a flash to when he she names bahubali so bahubali means the man with strong arms and you get the you flash back to the scene in the beginning of the movie where the baby bahubali's holding you know and it's just it just creates this like emotional 
heightened like potency and kind of like you're just like oh my god like this yeah. is where we at where we're at with this and he says to katapa take care of my mother mm. yeah and then katapa brings that up when he's like he didn't even think about his wife he didn't think about his unborn child the last thing he said was about you and it's like oh i definitely started crying i was, yeah. <laughs> I was like oh my god <laughs> you know yeah. it's just there's such a clarity of emotion and rajamuli knows when to turn that on and and be like mm-hmm. hey yeah remember when the, the the baby scene you remember that scene uh yeah i'm gonna put a whole flash of it right here so it makes you so you you start to feel bad about where where this journey has gone there's such a clarity with where he wants to take these characters in terms of what their principles are also what their arcs are because it's so easy for sivagami to become a very bland character right but she has such an interesting arc even from the beginning from the first film where yeah. you know in the first one you're like she's this very strong woman that protects her kids and then you see that she's fallible, that, you know, Bala was able to manipulate her. And then that's her tragic downfall, too. It, it's very classic, like, character writing, like this this fatal flaw. Yeah. Mm. And it's so easy to to not have that for these supporting characters. But Rajamuli goes that extra mile to design out these characters to a T. I think that's why I feel like the Avantika stuff, it feels like a, a myth there, right? Because right. he is constructing such complex and really emotionally charged characters all around and all like female characters and i guess he just didn't have room for avantika or didn't really have plans for her aside from that where she was used in part one that scene where katapa is telling sivagami devi about bahubali's final words and it flashes back to the baby bahubali holding on to sivagami devi's finger makes me realize that a great strength of rajamuli is as I'm thinking about setup, payoff, callback, motif, a great motif in this movie that I think speaks to how microscopic Rajamuli is able to go to extract emotion in addition to these gigantic set pieces is he uses touch so well mm. from the foot on top of Katapa's head mm. to hand holding to the gesture of promise that repeats across the movie when one palm is laid atop another. These are all extremely heightened and emotionally hefty moments. Yet Rajamuli is so good at getting even the smallest detail to speak volumes. Right. I think one of the most important ones is when Devasena asks baby Bahubali, you're gonna you're gonna save me, you know, you're gonna have you're gonna sit on the throne. And it's like a baby, but he still does the shot of the touch and the promise. Yeah. Mm, yeah. It's destiny now. Like the baby has to do it, you know, <laughs> you know? And yeah, exactly. I, I echo everything you're saying about how he is able to focus on these very specific audio, audiovisual motifs that build. And it's, it's just, again, like it goes back to this economy of Masala storytelling that he's so good at. Yeah. And that I think that he even more fine tunes in RRR, which, you know, I'm not going to really speak more about, but he's just so good at it. Yeah. Because um, I think once you reach that level of perfection, you're able to start playing around with it and like get creative with it as well. And I think that's where Rajamuli finds himself right now because he has mastered he has mastered filmmaking. Like he's that's check check <laughs> filmmaking done. <laughs> Let me just do something more here. <laughs> also, once you have the foundation of the tiny, you can build within a movie to the gigantic. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. So maybe let's talk about some set pieces. Yeah, my favorite set piece is a scene that I actually saw before I watched this movie. And it was on, it was like, there was a clip on Twitter of it floating around. And I was like, what the fuck is this? 
And it is the scene <laughs> in part two where they are trying to sneak into the castle and the, the gates up. So Bahubali like senses that the palm trees are in are, like flowing in the wind and he comes up with this plan to catapult uh, like groups of people on the palm trees like and and they are they're catapulted over the walls of the, the castle into it and they just bounce off of their shields and are straight into action and i think that's one of the most genius things that they could have thought of and looks so cool yeah even though very obviously entirely cgi mm. but still i'm like damn that is exciting that is so well thought out. That's just like a fun thing to show you to watch. Some writers want to show off how smart they are, but Raja Muli and his father here turn that show of intelligence into problem solving for the characters. This is what I was saying earlier about the difference between a character being clever and quippy and smart and adept at problem solving. Both Bahubali Sr. and Jr. have this skill. Uh, you were talking before about how the fact that he has an engineering degree makes sense. <laughs> Stuff like this makes me think about that. And also about how even with his like CGI heavy scenes, he is very cognizant of action and reaction. Like, mm. yes, if you think about that launching of human cannibals, yeah. essentially, there's a lot of stuff here, obviously, that's unrealistic, but... What's important is that when they land, they explode out into, like, a flower. Yeah. Right? And, of course, they have, like, thighs of steel to even be able to land <laughs> and yeah. not die. But even though that doesn't make sense, but the fact that you have that reaction of people flying out of the cannonball, that reaction helps you sell that shot. With all, like, his heavy-hitting stuff, it's always so high-impact, but they don't feel floaty. And I think that's very important because I think a lot of Marvel stuff can feel very floaty, mm-hmm. right. you know, with elective impact. Yes. But here, the impact in like all kinds of stuff, it feels physically possible in its kind of realm of, of possibility. You feel the impact. Right? Yes. Yeah. And I think that's very important when you're doing something so bombastic, like with Bahubali. Right. And, and also, like, a lot of these wide CGI shots, they kind of function in a way to clarify where all the action is happening. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's also an important thing because there are places where I do think Bahubali a little bit falters on the clarity of how the set piece is going. Mm-hmm. I keep saying I'm not going to talk about RRR, but this is kind of like, in RRR, <laughs> the, the clarity is immaculate. Mm. I don't know if you would agree with me, Ben, but in that movie, it's like... I definitely do. <laughs> the clarity of, even though he, it's these big CGI practical things, but here, it's like you start to see that he's already concerned about that, right? How he wants his viewer to be guided through the set piece. Personally, one of my favorite set pieces is, I don't know why I love this set piece so much. It's kind of like a smaller piece of kind of the, when the Pindaris are, the bandits are trying to raid the, the kingdom, uh, Devasana's kingdom, mm-hmm. is when Devasana's coming down the hallway and uh, Bahubali, like, introduces himself with the arrows and then he teaches her how to shoot the arrows i love that scene so much it's really like romantic it's fucking badass it's like uh (laughs) it kind of builds on like kind of this like feeling that devastana has had that you know remember we get like a scene in the beginning where she is trying to shoot two arrows but she can't and then Mm -hmm. that is kind of like brought back when Bahubali's like, not two, you got to use four fingers and you got to turn your wrist the other way. And then she masters it. It's such an amazing scene. And and you, and, and it also functions on like, they're falling in love, you know? Like it's yeah. like a really romantic, but it's also just like mm. super kick-ass. 
Yeah. Also, incredible shot in that scene of when Amarendra first fires the three arrows and they go whizzing past Devasana's head and yeah. jingle her earrings. Yeah. <laughs> how did they do that? Because the arrows are CGI, but how did they get her earrings to like move? It, I'm it, sure that's probably CGI someone too. holding her earrings. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> CGI out the fingers. A guy in a green suit just wiggling yeah. her ear. <laughs> you gotta look at the credits for the earring wiggler. <laughs> that's your answer. <laughs> but that shot also, she's being wooed and you see her emotion. It's not just flash. Yeah. There's content and yeah. every beat is imbued with character, not just pure action spectacle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That whole like section of the comedy, like romantic comedy stuff with Devasena and Bahubali Sr. And also um, Kumar Varma, who's, <laughs> I love Kumar Varma. He's so funny at this. Himbo. <laughs> Mm. It usually like that section right like if you have this part smack dab in the middle of this saga you would think that oh like that's this that's like the little snooze section right that's the light-hearted part that we should not pay that much attention to but i think like roger Mooley's amount of care and precision just in those scenes makes it worth it the boar chasing scene with both of them and bahu trying to control the arrows from behind Kumar Varma is so funny. And the way that he's trying to like dumb himself <laughs> down and Katapa playing up this role of like, Oh my, my nephew, my nephew is, is so great. <laughs> the blockhead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sequence has my favorite comedic moment in the movie. And I full on paused the movie, went back and transcribed this because it was killing me. <laughs> There's a point when Katapa is trying to convince Kumar Varma of his strength because Bahubali was really the one to chop this block of wood in half. Yes. Katapa says, Monitor lizard's tight grip, bull's blow, a warrior with an eagle eye, elephant's might, tiger's body, panther's speed, lion's magnificence. I can see the entire jungle in you, my lord. <laughs> Just as it went on and he was laying it on thicker and thicker, I was crying. It's so funny. Yeah. And then when they, when Rajamuli takes Kumar Varma's character mm. and twists it and making Kumar Varma basically the reason that Sivagami orders Katapa to kill Bahubali Sr. At, near the end is so heartbreaking. Samai, you were talking about that arc, right? Like even a character as, as small as Kumar Varma, his arc is so potent emotionally yeah. for you as a viewer. He gets to become a hero as well. Yeah, yeah, before that as well. At first he feels like comic relief and then he becomes a hero because of Bahubali, which also builds the kind of principle and the charisma and power of Bahubali. And then becomes friends with him and then becomes his downfall. It's unexpected to have Kumar Varma in that role later on. But when it happens, you're like, oh my god. Like, he has, like, a role in the macro level of the story. Yeah. Ben, you were going to say something about speaking of payoff. Oh, yeah. Speaking of payoff. No, because we're talking about the human cannibal yeeting over the, the Fort Gates yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeeting. Yeeting. <laughs> the palm tree thing was already kind of set up when we had that whole sequence where Bahubali and Devasena go off into a village and, like, start making their own town kind of thing. Yeah. And then they, they do this thing with the water. Yes. So that felt like a very random thing, but it wasn't that random. It was actually important for the final battle for that. Think like your father, right? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Every single thing pays off. I was scrubbing back through the movies, and I 
think my favorite set piece is at the start of the second movie in which Sivagami Devi has to complete a ritual. She's walked for a hundred miles. What was it? Uh, barefoot to light a statue of Shiva on fire. It's important as part of the ritual to crown Bahubali as the next king. And an elephant goes wild and it starts to stampede towards Sivagami Devi. It's such a great setup to this action sequence because there are instant high stakes of what could go wrong. And it's writing the character into a corner of how could this possibly be solved? And then boom, Bahubali emerges with this giant cart that is the perfect device to stop this elephant and for his mother to pass through underneath the wheels. It's so well placed at the start of the second movie to bring us back into the flow of these movies. And it's creative and a blast and shows Bahubali's bond with his mom. Great, I agree. I'm thinking now about there is a fight with the bandits, I think, but with Katapa and Bahubali together and the throwing that sword around or the hatchet. Oh, so good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm just thinking about how that also is another example of something that has paid off with how Katapa kills uh, Bahubali. Yeah. He mirrors the exact shot too. Exactly. Like, it's the exact yeah. thing where it's like the, the weapon is kind of at the top of the frame flipping yeah. and it goes down and Katapa catches it. Whereas in the beginning of the movie, that scene is played for laughs because it's, it's mm. supposed to be like ma a little bit, you know, like Bahubali's so entranced by Devasana that he's not realizing that his <laughs> Katapa's gonna, gonna die, yeah. you know? Uh, but then at the end, it's like, then you see that again, you're like, oh my god, like it's it's like, he's bringing this back, like <laughs> you know, so... Uh, <laughs> you're like, please. <laughs> That's a scene about their friendship. Yeah. And then mm -hmm. he calls back to it in the scene in which they betray the friendship, which yeah. is just crazy because like i don't think i can think of a movie that does something so elegant with something like that yeah yeah because you could you didn't have to make that connection and i would still know they were friends before but having that direct link between those two scenes has an impact yeah. it's a very visceral thing but it, it makes you remember like a muscle memory thing that like you feel that connection through the throw of the weapon mm -hmm. yeah and how that gets broken this is random but <laughs> i just started remembering about it and that's Tell me if you guys agree with me. The strongest weapon in this in these films is always like a tree trunk. <laughs> yeah, because there are so many scenes where it seems like nothing hurts Bahubali, whether young or old, like a sword, arrows, nothing seems to do anything. But when he's hit with a tree trunk or like a branch, he seems to fall over the most. <laughs> but that's just my kind of weird theory because just... When you watch them all back to back, me and my girlfriend are watching, we're like, wow, every time he gets hit by a branch, he falls down. <laughs> but swords, like, he doesn't feel anything invincible against swords, spears, arrows. But hit him with a stick and he falls over. Yeah, that's <laughs> why you gotta reduce, reuse, recycle, R, R, R. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, the trees will get you. Yeah. There are a lot of tree based weapons. <laughs> <laughs> I know that we've spent the episode shitting on part one, but I do want to bring up the scene in part one where Bahubali sneaks into the kingdom for the first time. And as he's sneaking in, they're all they're putting up the big golden statue of of Bala. Mm. And oh. the, the statue starts falling because people were not looking and Bahubali saves the day. And one of the people sees his sees his face and recognizes him. And that just starts this massive chant that starts happening. They're chanting for Bahubali's name while they're they're carrying up uh, Balaladeva's statue. 
And I think that, like, one of the best uses of CGI, like, happens right after that moment because they're all chanting Bahubali's name and you see the statue, like, fall into place and then it starts zooming out. And behind this golden statue of Baladeva is this even larger golden statue of Bahubali. <laughs> and it is just, like, the perfect way to, like, smack in your face Bahubali is not forgotten, uh, even though Baladeva likes to believe that him and Devasena are the only people who remember him. That is not true. And I think that was one of the most powerful moments in that first film. For sure. That is a great sequence. I think that's the intermission of part one. And it's so interesting how that also mirrors the intermission of part two, when Bala is about to be coronated. It is. It also functions in a very similar way, right? Where it's Bala trying to be this demonstration of his power, his newfound, of him being king, but the people's king is Bahubali, right? And it's, yes. it's always about undermining Bala's power and, and his feeling of power, right? And uh, like how, the, how that intermission in the first part works, and then how the intermission of the second part works, where there's not much of a response when he's being coronated, but then when Bahubali does his speech, every, everyone goes crazy, right? Mm -hmm. And how Bala feels about that, right? And it's the same way that he felt about in part one in the interval where everyone was saying Bahubali's name when his statue was being put up. It's, it's a brilliant pairing, right? It, it, it makes you kind of call back the, the intermission of, of the first part too. Right, I didn't notice that before. Actually, I really like that scene in, in, in part two where the chanting like and the stamping and everything like makes the entire world shake. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That stuff is just kind of cool. Yeah, I like that. Okay. The way he builds the energy in that scene is brilliant too, where he's like telling each of the sections of the military mm. and then how he cuts to all the shots and it's like so much of like, you get like a sense of the scale and then yes. everything all comes together when Bahubali is being coordinated. It's just the scene construction is so precise, right? Yes. I think the energy of that scene is brilliant. How the soundtrack shifts because the space is so vast that each part of the chance are different because they're so far away from each other and they have different musicians that whenever he cuts to a different area, it's a different song about Bahubali. Uh, I, I don't know. It's, <laughs> right. it's great. And I think there's so much in the sound design and the score of this that is a lot of like the, the tone setting and also like the anticipation of action come. And the buildup of that is just through this percussive or like this rhythmic like beating of the drums yeah i, I it, it just oh it just really works so well in maintaining action even though action might not be happening on screen you're still feeling it through the propulsiveness of the score yeah kiravani's score is is brilliant in both of these movies. i mean oh yeah that's his cousin right that's his cousin yeah <laughs> Yeah, Kiravani's score, I think, works much better in the second movie. I, I found it in the first movie that I didn't find there to really be a sync with the music and the action. Mm -hmm. But I feel like in part two, they really nailed that that sync where Kiravani knows exactly when to play up a scene, mm -hmm. when to hold back. And I think that that balance was, was something that they found so perfectly in part two. Mm. Uh, whereas in part one, I don't think they fully got there. Like, there's some good pieces of music, but I think the music in part two, like, is far better than part one, at least the use of it. Yeah. Oh, cool. Whoa. We've been talking for nearly two hours. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't feel like we've been talking that long, which also makes me think about how when I watch these films, it feels like 
the amount of time that passes is longer than the amount of time that actually passed. Mm. Not in a bad way, like it feels long, but like I feel like I have just swallowed so much information that doesn't seem to fit in the amount of time that has passed. It feels epic. Yeah. I was watching part two and I was like, how the fuck do you wrap this up in 40 minutes? Like at the end, mm-hmm. I was like, I, I do not know how, there's so much left to do. There's a fight scene. There's all this other crap. And I was like, how? How are you going to do it? And he does it and he's able to like jam a lot of action and information all in, and actually in a way, a short amount of time. Yeah. 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 A director I keep on thinking about when we're talking about these two films is John Woo. Mm. <laughs> John Woo has a similar sense of like imbuing action scenes with a lot of emotion. And I think both of them have their own really like distinct stylistic ways of presenting action, but they both perfect it in their own ways. And I'm thinking about the the two Red Cliff movies that John Woo did. That's why that's why because they're both like historical two-part like epics that have these massive action set pieces. I don't think any other director is able to, except for these two, that are able to really intertwine the emotional and the really high action stuff into one, where you, your investment emotionally in these characters are tied with your investment in them achieving what they wanted to do in this action set piece. I'm glad you <laughs> made that comparison to John Woo, because a comparison that I see a lot of people make to Rajamuli is... Zack Snyder, oh. and I and I and I think that's such a wrong way of looking at Rajamuli's filmmaking, and it's kind of a pet peeve that I've that I've had with a lot of letterboxed white cinephile faces engage with Rajamuli's filmmaking. They mm-hmm. engage on, with it on purely a spectacle level, yep. on purely a visual, like on a kind of oh, what I'm seeing is so crazy and bonkers. Yeah, it is such a disservice to his capabilities as a storyteller, yeah. uh, what his skill as a filmmaker. I saw a lot of this when RRR was coming out, this like, oh my God, the action's over the top. It's this like condescension that is, that they kind of hide underneath praise. Yep. You can tell like, oh my God, like they, they are looking at it at such a base level. And then when I see people compare his films to like 300 or Snyder, I'm like, you don't get it. You absolutely don't get it. And you're not giving this the time of day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And frankly, we don't need those kinds of opinions you know we want people who will critically engage with his work you know and if you have a problem with the film too like you have to critically engage with it like i'd rather opinions that critically that maybe don't like roger Mooley's films and critically engage with it than the opinions that praise it but like totally get everything wrong and like condescend to it mm-hmm. in a way that is i find really disrespectful and also just like not the way that you should be watching indian films in the first place yeah. you know it's a larger issue with the way that people watch indian spectacle too they don't understand like the functions of how masala works. And then when they see something like Bahubali 2 or RRR, there's just this weird attitude I start seeing from a lot of white cinephile spaces that like I actually wrote something about this on on, on Letterboxd uh, when RRR came out. That's also one of my most liked reviews on Letterboxd, which is crazy. <laughs> yeah, plug, stuff, plug. <laughs> yes. We can put a link in the description. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I'm so really, really happy that you guys are talking about his storytelling abilities because that is something that I find people 
don't talk about it all, especially in white cinephile spaces who think they've like discovered Rajamuli and think that they're and then say like, oh, this action is so crazy. And and, and don't yeah. look at what we talk about, the palace intrigue, all these like motifs that he's working with. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just a disservice to the filmmaker that he is, you know, and his capabilities. It really is. Absolutely. Rajamuli said in an interview that I watched today, he said, I don't think I'm your good director. I think I'm a good storyteller. And the directing part of it is the thing that he's always unsure about, but he is very sure of his stories Mm. and the impact that they have. Well, he is also a good director. (laughs) Yes, he is definitely a good director. (laughs) And, And I'm so glad that we are talking about Bahubali this way, especially in this way, because the most popular podcast about Bahubali is... Oh, call, yeah. Is Deep Cut. Yeah. It's now, I hope, is now going to be Deep Cut. There's this podcast episode by these three, like, white film YouTubers, and they basically spend an hour poo-pooing the first part, just, like, saying things that kind of come off low-key, like, pretty racist and, mm. like, really just... You know, they do that, like, snide YouTube thing mm. of, like, doing the CinemaSin stuff, and then they're just like, oh, I don't get Indian movies, and Ugh. and I'm hoping that this podcast that we have is a corrective to all of that. Kind of, I just wanted to say that because I'm like, I'm glad we actually, we're actually critically engaging with this film and not just, I don't know, watching it because we think it's, like, a funny Indian movie. Mm. Yeah. It is far from that. It is much more. Mm-hmm. Yes. Viewing anything that you don't like in a movie as something that's wrong with the vernacular the movie is working in is such a terrible way to watch movies. Yeah. To not approach a work of art humbly, open, and ready to receive and step up to where it is. Yeah. And we are a filmmaker-based podcast. And w- w- what is the point of our podcast if we don't respect the filmmaker and what they want us, yeah. the, and, and the way that we they want us to watch their movies? We chose the wording of our introduction very deliberately. Yeah. <laughs> and we almost changed it. <laughs> yeah. And we are not done yet. So you can join us next episode when we take a deeper dive into Roger Mooley's filmography with Iga. Fly episode. It's gonna be a fucking wild ride, guys. I don't know what to expect with this. You two have no idea what's happening. You you two have no clue what's, what's coming your way. You don't know what's coming, let me tell you. <laughs> I look at the synopsis, I'm like, okay, where do we go from here? <laughs> Bahubali really operates as like, okay, this is gonna be, I guess, a spectacle for everybody. Iga is still a spectacle for everybody, but before you watch the movie, you're like, how could this be for me? Yeah. You'll, you'll, you'll find out. You'll find out. <laughs> like, I can at least put Bahubali into a box, right? Like, I understand the kind of movie this could be. I do not know what box Iga is trying to be in. <laughs> it could be buzzing in any box. <laughs> buzzing in any box. Nice. nice. Okay. First, I want to say thank you to our special guest today, Thamai Lagudu, for coming on the pod again. Thank you, Thamai. Thank you. And helping us introduce you all to the works of uh, S.S. Rajamuli. And you will also be back next episode. It's not going to be too long before we hear from you again. Yeah. And you got to come back for Rotnam this year as well. Yeah. Thamai. For Pony and Sylvan. <laughs> That's coming out in September. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Podcasting. Big year. <laughs> 
big year. <laughs> oh, podcasting this year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and thanks for having me on. And I'm so glad you guys committed um, six hours of your life to this, um, <laughs> to this uh, series. I feel like there's certain filmmakers that we're all very annoying about. And that particular filmmaker for me is Raja Mooley. I, <laughs> and I, I've always been trying to get people to watch his movies. You know, it's it's so great to like have a really in-depth discussion that actually like considers the film and like actually looks at what he's doing on a, on a form and structural level and on a narrative level. This is really awesome. And I'm so glad that you guys really enjoyed the conclusion because to me, the conclusion is basically one of the pinnacles of like mythic storytelling. Like hmm. it's brilliant. I, I think I've seen it like four times now. Like it's <laughs> and, and I'm glad that you guys got out of it what what I got out of it when I saw it on like the big IMAX screen. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. And um, I'm glad we had this, this really awesome discussion. If you've, if you've seen the Bahu Bali's four times, that is a day of your life. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> this is spread out over years though. Like, let me... <laughs> So I guess it's a day out of, you know, whatever, four or five years though. <laughs> I saw some letterbox review. He was like, I've seen this a thousand times. I was like, damn bro. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's real, but if I was imagining it, that's a lot of Bahubali. Yeah, and and the interesting thing about about this movie too is like it's really difficult to recommend to people in a way because it is such a long commitment. Like mm-hmm. you know, we can't ignore that that it is such a long commitment. It is like very much like I think it's worth it. Yes, but it, it is always difficult to recommend it to people because it's like I don't want to just recommend the first movie because because you can't because you can't right and I don't yeah. want to just recommend the second movie because you kind of need some of the first movie because you can't <laughs> exactly yeah because you can't yeah <laughs> I think my go-to recommendation for Rajamouli now is like you is some of his like you know like Ega and some of his earlier stuff that's like one movie and now it's, it's going to be rrr for anyone i i, mm. I ask how they want to enter rajamuli i'm probably going to tell them rrr and then start watching his other stuff so i wonder if this would be rajamuli's claim to fame for my life where all the films on the podcast i actually watched with my girlfriend who is not like a big cinephile because i watched rrr with her and she was so down with it which is how i got her to watch the bahubali Bahubali's <laughs> back-to-back days oh we watched God. it last night the first part and I was like, you need to come back tomorrow. We need to watch the second part before this podcast is being recorded. <laughs> like, I was like, you have to, because how else are you going to know what happens? Yeah. How else are you going to know WKKB? W-K-K-B. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And Ben, I mean, um, how did your girlfriend respond to RRR? Because I'm very interested because like, it's a film that demands quite a bit from its viewer, I think. I mean, part of it is that, like, she kind of comes from this, you know, like, appreciating for the spectacle, but also kind of, like, right. the intense emotional storytelling. But she's also there for, like, Ram just being a man. Yeah. Like, being such a man. <laughs> she, I think Riz really enjoyed the spectacle of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I would have to ask her, like, how else she, like, really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. But she was down for Bahubali for sure, based off RRR, which I think is such a great introduction to Raja Mooli's work, I feel. Yeah, it's a quick three hours. <laughs> yeah. Very quick three hours. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe to us where you listen to podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. Keep up with Deep Cut on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd at Deep Cut Pod. Join us to talk about movies on our Discord server, to which you'll find a link in the description. Thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. I'm Eli. And I'm Thammai. Take care, and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Nice, nice, nice.
just gonna do my thing where I play the movie in the background as we. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which one, though? <laughs>